From deep within a gold mine in the Sierra Madre Mountains, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two men who don't need no stinking badges, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Corey, to whom do we owe that intro? That piece of <laughs> was brought to you by Chris Boyd's in the Hood. Had to censor Corey a little bit there. Had to Wade. bleep him with had to bleep him with his own Jerry Lewis uh, insert. Wade, you know when when an artist tries to express himself, yes, you really have to defer to that. Yes, there should be no bleeping. I know on the Digigods. I know, but this is you know family hour. Isn't it? I, you know what? I guess it depends. You know what? We have uh, we have fans in uh, yes, we do. far flung lands, and they listen to us uh, during primetime family hour, family viewing, perhaps even during family dinner. Maybe they broadcast us uh, to their children. Maybe they put us on their children's iPods. I don't know. Or or maybe they play the show during their church services. It's possible. Like instead of today's sermon, we're going to play last week's Digicons. Wait and Mark as they talk about uh, the Mimic Three film set. Can you? Can you imagine that the the best way to ensure yeah. uh, the end of all organized religion <laughs> it's only. is to uh, is to play our podcast at all religious services? I would agree. Although although it would make bar mitzvahs go by a lot faster. Yes, it would. Because bar mitzvahs, as you know, are horribly boring. I like bar mitzvahs. I do fun. not. I do. Why? It's a thing. It's fun. So boring. Uh, you know, Mark. This is the. That's week. why I didn't get bar mitzvah. By the way. You didn't get bar mitzvah? I did not. Oh, my gosh. I did not. we got to remedy that. I remember— You're I, not a man. I, that, according to the Jewish faith, I am not. I remember all my friends were getting bar mitzvah at the time. They were getting like 2000 Now, when you're 13 years old, 2000 bucks is like a, a trillion dollars. And I really wanted the money. So I—and uh, I, I didn't want to go—I didn't like Hebrew school. I asked to leave. I'm not a religious person. Sure. So I had said to my father, I said, uh, 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 Dad— uh, I would like to get bar mitzvah, sure, but I would like to memorize the ceremony phonetically, <laughs> so I d- would know the actual Hebrew or what it means. I just want to be able to s- replicate the sounds That's in the right order. And my father, who like was although a militant Zionist, my father hated organized religion <laughs> more than anything in the world. I knew he would say yes because he hated organized religion, but actually he said no. He said, if you're going to do it, do it right. Right. So I said, okay, I'm going to go play with my friends. And that was it. There you go. I never got apartments, but fine. Thank you. There you go. Well, good night, everyone. Well, this is the week that The Avengers opens up. And, of course, this is one of the most hotly anticipated films of the year. And by sheer flaming coincidence... There's a bunch of Marvel stuff that's uh, suddenly hitting the market. What the? I know it's amazing. It's like the, it's it, it, they like they did they plan it? I mean, they couldn't have. Uh, we have on Blu-ray from Lionsgate the Ultimate Avengers movie collection. This is from Animated Marvel Features. Of course, Marvel does the same thing that DC does, which is that they want to keep uh, keep you going on both ends. They want animated features straight to DVD and Blu-ray, and uh, the big live-action whiz-bang stuff. They want, they want to just keep you addicted to all these heroes left and right. So this is the Ultimate Avengers movie collection, which includes Ultimate Avengers and Ultimate Avengers 2. And uh, there's also a bonus movie, Next Avengers, Heroes of Tomorrow. 
I gotta say, it's fine. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that this is gonna sell gobs from people who are gonna walk out of the movie and say, "Where can I, where can I get more Avengers?" And then they're gonna watch these animated movies and they're gonna just say, uh, "That wasn't like the movie. It wasn't nearly as good as the movie." Uh, it's fine. You know, this is this is all just pure marketing. Does it deserve to be on Blu-ray? I guess it's it's it, the animation is solid and uh, it's not embarrassing. How's that for a, ra- a resounding endorsement? And then uh, we also have animated from the Marvel animated features a three movie collection that includes two Avengers and one of my favorite Marvel heroes, which I really enjoyed. Uh, one is Planet Hulk, not so good. Uh, the Invincible Iron Man, better. And Doctor Strange, totally cool. I love Doctor Strange. I don't know why you love Doctor Strange so much. It's like the lamest superhero. Oh, he's not even coolest. a superhero. He's like the magician guy. Yeah, he's a wizard. He's, no. a, he's a sorcerer. But you don't, you don't read comic books for wizards and sorcerers. You read comic world, books for Superman the, and Batman. The world that Doctor Strange inhabits is a cool world. No, it's not. It's just, it really is cool. You know, and you know, you know what? What they really should have done is, instead of making Doctor Strange like a cool guy, they should have made him Doug Henning. Yeah, that's exactly. So, that would have been great. So Doug Henning Doug with his Henning. little, with his, his nasty little seventies bell bottoms and uh, and skin skin tight. Yeah, it's fabulous. This is Doug Henning. Welcome to the wonderful uh, world of magic. With his buck teeth. No, and it's, it's, it's like if Doug Henning was Doctor Strange. That comic would have lasted three three issues. <laughs> if if that, I don't think so. Uh, no, but look, I mean, Doctor Strange. You know, he's got a he's got a secret identity. He's not a he's not a you know he's he's Doctor Stephen Strange. But he's not from like another planet, and where's he? And where's his underwear on his? Uh, it's uh, fun flies. mystical stuff. No, mystical anyway, that one heroes aren't mystical. This is a Blu-ray, and I recommend it strictly because of that one because I think it's super cool. We also have a couple of uh, Marvel anime titles here uh, where, with basically Japanese character design of Marvel heroes. One is X-Men. This is a uh, two-disc set. And uh, the other one is Iron Man two-disc set. And uh, I, you know, I guess uh, X-Men animated series, Iron Man animated series done in the, the old anime style thanks to uh, a lot of Japanese artists and character designers. Uh, I, I, I suppose it's a nice twist on an old theme uh, or a relatively uh, familiar theme. And uh, yeah, sure, why not? It, you know, I, I'm sure some purists won't be thrilled, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting take, an interesting diversion. And then, of course, the, from the Marvel Knights series, that's K-N-I-G-H-T-S, uh, the Marvel Knights animation line uh, in their usual little flimsy eco-digipack, uh, it will snap if you look at it wrong packaging. Uh, courtesy of Joss Whedon and John Cassidy, is Astonishing X-Men Dangerous. This is uh, the Joss Whedon-John Cassidy follow-up to uh, Astonishing X-Men Gifted, and it's uh, basically more of the same. So uh, Joss Whedon is clearly trying to become the new Stan Lee, I guess, in some sense. That seems to be his uh, what he's angling for. And uh, yeah, this is it's key in keeping with the whole Marvel Knights thing. So if uh, if the Avengers has just got you uh, completely in a Marvel tizzy and you can't get your fix, uh, go out and grab one of these and just watch it until the the, the residual effects of it, the whole experience subsides, and then you know you die. It, you die. <laughs> Is, is Avengers going to make $150 million? It, it can't, right? Uh, it's going to make a lot of money. I know it is. It's going to make a lot of money. Yeah. But I'm just not feeling like a $150 million opening. I don't think it's going to do better than Hunger Games. Ah. I don't know that it is. 
I don't know what it is. I'm not. I'm not feeling. I'm, you're I'm, not. You're not feeling that level of excitement. I don't know that I am. It's an interesting conundrum. Before we get on with the rest of this stuff, it's an interesting conundrum because by all of these lead-ins, you know, they they tried to ramp everything up with two Hulk movies and two Iron Man movies, and then you know Thor and and uh, Captain America in the same summer, and I think the whole idea was to get everybody so just whipped into a frenzy. That when the Avengers came out, everybody was just like, oh, yes, there it is. And it would be like that burst, that orgasmic burst of, you know, there it is, yes, finally. I have a feeling the opposite has happened, which is there's a little bit of burnout. People are like, oh, jeez. Hero fatigue. And and particularly these hero fatigue. They're going to look at Loki and Thor and Captain America and they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, haven't I had enough of these guys? Like, weren't they just here last summer? It, uh, that's part like, of it. Like, can't this just be the summer of Prometheus and Batman? That's like, I haven't seen that for a while, but th- this, is, this is too recent. Part of it is almost like, are they coming out with a Captain America sequel six months later? Yeah. yeah. You know? Because, look, when, when we were growing up, you know, we would have we died if they had made a film with Spider-Man, Captain America, and oh, like yeah, three absolutely. other heroes in it. Totally. We would have absolutely asked our parents. 100%. 100%. You know, and, and on our Facebook page, I was saying that when I was a kid reading comic books, you know, whenever Spider-Man appeared in a Daredevil or Captain America appeared in a Spider-Man or Fantastic Four, it would be like, oh, my God, Daredevil's in the new Fantastic Four? Totally. i got to buy that issue. Wow. Totally. And, you know, I used to live for that stuff. But somehow, Avengers, I don't know what it is. I I'm, can't. I, I yeah, don't I'm know not, what I can do. Make me love board. it. I'm not Make me love it. I know, Wade. What are you going to do? Anyway, uh, a couple uh, TV things we're talking about. One old, one new. Uh, Kojak is coming out fast and furious on DVD. This is uh, Kojak season four. This is a great 70s cop show. Uh, I didn't love every episode of this thing, but it was really cool. Um, it ran for five seasons from 1973 to 78, and a bunch of TV movies also that just came out on uh, in a, in a DVD collection, which is kind of cool. But uh, here you have the fourth season, uh, a couple dozen episodes here. And, uh, you know, look, I don't know many Kojak completists out there, but uh, if you're there, go for it. Otherwise, uh, you know, the, the inspiration tends to be seasons one and two. But uh, it's okay. Yeah. Also, uh, a little newer we have from uh, the good folks at USA, we have Covert Affairs Season 2. I, yeah, I'm you surprised know, this uh, show lasted as long as it I've, has. I'm, I don't think it's that great of a show, but I, I catch reruns now and again, and it's fine. It's fine. It, and now it it's doesn't becoming, bore me. Well, now it's becoming kind of like, a, 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 like a, 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 spy, a spy thing meets like Ally McBeal. Yeah. Where, you know, she's a CIA operative. And she's, uh, you know, she's really good at what she does, but now she's got, like, personal problems and professional problems that intersect. And now it's becoming too Ally McBeal for me, but it's got a good supporting cast, including Peter Gallagher, who I always like. And, uh, you know, 16 episodes, uh, deleted scenes, gag reel, you know, uh, an on-location piece. Not a big fan of the show, but if you like it, there's no reason not to get Covert Affairs Season 2. Yeah. You know, there was a, a Bob Newhart series that everybody always forgets about called Bob. We, we love to talk about the Bob Newhart show and Newhart, but nobody talks about Bob. Because What was about sh- Bob? It was short-lived. <laughs> Thank you. It was short-lived. Uh, the, and this ties in with the whole Marvel thing this week as well. Uh, Bob Newhart and Betty White and Jerry Burns. Remember Jerry Burns? He was, on, he was, on, uh, he, he was with that on the Judd Nelson show, Dear John, for a little while. He played Kirk. Kirk. Are you, you kidding me? How would you even remember that? Because I, I, I wrote a spec. Dave Weishart and I wrote a spec for that show. 
<laughs> it was that a good was the, spec. That was, was the hot spec in nineteen. You know what? It was like we did a Cheers spec, and they stole our teaser, and then uh, and that's a whole different story. And then we did a uh, we did a Dear John spec, and it was and both of them were really good. The Dear John spec was terrific. I'm still really proud of it. If the show had lasted, it, it might actually have it might have done something. But anyway, that was yeah, that was the hot, the hot spec back then. It was Dear John. Uh, anyway, Jerry Burns, a very funny guy, great character, and uh, Betty White, who's hot again. Now, this was uh, Bob Newhart basically played a. Uh, there's a whole trajectory in this where he's a guy who had created a comic book, and now he's writing greeting cards. And through this, you know, then he, the, the comic book is going to take off again. Anyway, he winds up being a greeting card guy again. But uh, that's not what they're playing up in the artwork. They're playing up the superhero angle because this is the Avengers, and by golly, we want everybody to think that Bob is about a superhero. You know, did I tell you I saw Bob Newhart a couple years ago at hmm. Baskin Robbins in Westwood? That's pretty great. You know, you know, Do you was, remember what was, flavor he was getting? No. It was Bob Newhart. He was just sitting. He was the only guy in the store. Mm-hmm. I, t- I think I might have told the story yeah. when it happened. Just just like this old guy wearing a baseball cap sitting go. in Baskin Robbins. And I don't think he expected anybody to recognize Eat him. Eating ice cream? Yeah. Sweet. But because Westwood's a college town, which is where UCLA is, yeah. I don't think he expected anybody to recognize him. But I was there. And I said, Bob, I think you're awesome. Loved your show. Love your stand-up. You should have. You should have sat down with him. You should have said to him, "I just had the weirdest dream." You know what I should have done? I should have grabbed him by the throat, <laughs> yeah. and shoved him against the wall. And said, "Give me your money, you <laughs> effing piece of crap." I mean, just think of what he would have done. <laughs> like some guy coming the ra- out of the rampaging fan. I mean, the rampaging fan. Oh, that's Give me great. All your money, you effing piece of crap. And I just would have just <laughs> taken him by the throat and shoved him up against the wall of the Baskin Robbins in Westwood. That would have been great. Well, anyway, uh, this was a very short lived show. It's it's not among his that's best. Where but you know the, what? That's where I would want the uh, the uh, the uh, ten second stopwatch. I'd like to buy the ten second stopwatch. Sure? Maybe it's the thirty second stopwatch. Which would where it you take? do whatever you want, and then when you press the stopwatch, you go back in time ten seconds, so it didn't happen. That's pretty cool. There's a movie in that. Uh, but anyway, if you're a Bob Newhart fan, you'll enjoy it. It's, it's decent. If the show probably could have had some legs if they'd have given it uh, a little bit more time. Um, and then uh, also, if you're a big fan of classic television comedians, you will enjoy Ernie Kovacs, the ABC specials. This is the uh, five complete television specials. Ernie's that, awesome. Ernie's the best. I mean, he really is. Awesome. And, there's so much. If you watch Jimmy Fallon, there's a lot of Ernie Kovacs and Jimmy Fallon. Oh, don't. I'm don't serious. You, Jimmy don't. Fallon does bits that are very Ernie Kovacs inspired. Oh. They're really avant-garde and uh, really very peculiar. I mean, if you watch what he did with uh, Tracy Morgan, Won't You Pop My Balloon, just do a search on that. Do Won't You Pop My Balloon, Tracy Morgan and uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon. It is hysterical. It is straight-up Ernie Kovacs. It's exactly the kind of thing he would have done. These are specials that aired in uh, 1961 and 1962, and uh, really, it's just uh, it's just first-rate, legendary, pioneering television comedy. Uh, you you if you you know you don't have to get the complete Ernie Kovacs collection. You, these are the ones that really really matter. Completists will get the the bigger set, but Shot Factory gave us these five specials, and uh, they're great. They're absolutely terrific, and the transfers are beautiful. They've done. I think they've restored these from the original materials. They they had to have. They just look too damn good. They just look too damn good. Uh, well, you know what uh, doesn't look too damn good? Who do you think you are? Stars trace their family roots through history. This was a well, this show is a on, genealogy uh, show. Yes, this yeah. was a show on NBC. Yeah. It lasted a couple seasons, and I got to tell you, it really is the height of celebrity narcissism and uh, our appetite for it that you would really give. Two S's, where Lionel Richie came from. 
or Rosie O'Donnell. Who by the Rosie O'Donnell, by the way, from Comac. Oh, really? That's where I lived. Well, see, there you go. Now you care. Yes, I you do. You found that out, and now you she care. Lived, she lived in Comac oh, and, uh, on Long Island, and so did I. Anyway, uh, I mean, who, who cares? Why, <laughs> why, do, why do these people think? I, I could see, like, Steve Buscemi, Gwyneth Paltrow. I could see them personally caring, which is fine. Sure. They, can, they personally care where they came from, what their ancestors were like. Totally get it. But the fact that they want to make a show about it and expect us to give an S, it just really just rankled me. I just hate this stuff. Uh, anyway, but uh, if you love it, uh, then uh, go to hell. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who do you think you are? Okay, season two. Yeah, beautiful. Um, now, we talked about uh, the uh, Piper Parabou show a couple minutes ago. Now we have Suits, season one. Some of these USA shows... I feel like these USA shows are kind they're, of like they're they're branding themselves though. I get it. There's a USA brand, and it's it's not a brand that I think is a great brand, but at least it's a brand. It's something. It's a profile. It it has a it has a, a taste and a style and an attitude and a signature. And I understand that. It's a you know what? It's a little all all their stuff, including suits, is a little more lightweight and a little breezier. Yeah. And not as not as hefty and not as well done as some of the HBO stuff. And I agree. Some of the uh, some of the other uh, you know uh, uh, high end cable stuff, but. They definitely have a niche, and Suits is about this, uh, you know, these attorneys at this big Manhattan uh, corporate law firm, and uh, you know, I, I skimmed this thing. I didn't wasn't that impressed with it. I didn't get it, um, but you know, it was moderately popular. Bonus features include uh, deleted scenes, gag reel, commentary. You know, stars uh, what's his, that 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 kid Gabriel mocked who who oh, was yeah. in the, he played he was in uh, what was the movie he starred in Star Wars? No, the shit. <laughs> <laughs> I would never say something like that. Uh, gotcha. All right. Um, who cares about that? We can talk about the Dick Van Dyke show, Carl Reiner's Favorites. Now, this is good times. The Dick Van Dyke show was a classic show from uh, back in the day and uh, had a great cast, including uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Maury Amsterdam. Maury Amsterdam. Reiner. Oh, I love how I love Maury Amsterdam. I know. Gosh, I miss those guys. And this DVD, which I wish was on Blu-ray. Um, I wish have, all those shows were on Blu-ray. I, I know. Do. We have 20 episodes that were uh, personally selected for this DVD collection by Carl Reiner. And it's great. It's great stuff. Rosemary is also in it, obviously. And uh, I think this is a great Great DVD. Uh, the, Mary, uh, the Dick Van Dyke Show is a show that your parents probably loved. They probably watched. Uh, it was a little before my time, so I was only into it in reruns. But uh, it's great stuff. It's great stuff, Dick Van Dyke Show. I am now going to go from the ridiculous to the sublime. I'm going to start off with the ridiculous, which would be Billy the Exterminator Season 4, because my wife loves this show. I don't know why. Uh, it, basically, Billy the Exterminator is one of those. This is one of those A and E real, reality shows, and uh, you know they're all about strange jobs. You know, uh, ice road truckers and fishermen and people with dirty jobs and all that weird stuff. Billy the Exterminator knows everything about getting rid of everything. He's just one of these guys from the South who knows if you've got a problem, not just with cockroaches or, or spiders or ants or rats. He knows how to get rid of gators and raccoons. And uh, renegade geese, and you name it. I mean, he just knows. He he just knows how to get rid of it. His company is Vexcon, and uh, he is just a Cajun lunatic. Um, anyway, th- this thing scooches all over the place. It seems to all be in the South for some reason. Is that the only place that people have pest problems? I don't know. I, I hate all these shows where they they, they, they take anyway. these occupations that are meaningless and give them shows. I mean, well, how like garbage men? The you know, show is he's going to happen soon. He's a funny guy. I got to admit, he's a real spaz. He's like a he's like a rock and roller who just gets rid of bugs and and animals. And anyway, this is season four. All the shows are pretty much the same, and you learn a lot actually. Um, 
I don't know when you'd ever necessarily apply this knowledge unless you live in some godforsaken uh, bizarre place like the Everglades, but uh, there it is. And now we get to the sublime, which is a bunch of really classy British television stuff. Uh, Titanic recently aired on the exact weekend that would have marked the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. This is a big, big big-ass miniseries uh, written by Julian Fellows, who is suddenly hot all over again. Julian Fellows, of course, wrote Gosford Park and won an Academy Award for it, and then went on and kind of expanded on that whole uh, Edwardian British thing to become a television phenomenon with Downton Abbey. Um, anyway, the Titanic miniseries, he, you know, he mouthed off a little bit about Cameron, about how Cameron's film was historically inaccurate and just wait till you see my miniseries and all that. And a lot of, there was a lot of uh, uh, kind of backlash about that. But quite frankly, look, Fellows was playing the game. You know, he, he, he got a whole lot of publicity out of that and people watched it. Uh, it's not as good as I had hoped it would be. However, I thought it was pretty awesome good. It really does. It, it, it almost overreaches. It's almost too ambitious, too many characters, too many stories. It really tries to throw its arms around the totality of this enormous, vast tragedy. And it, it really kind of it goes it, – it does this interesting thing structurally where it keeps dropping back in time and sort of tracing another story back to the fateful event. So it's not a linear story. It's very interesting. It's very ambitiously told. Um, so I, I would almost say I can forgive it its sins because it really aspires to do something so tremendous. It, uh, I, I just think maybe they should have, you know, had a little bit more money and a little bit more time to pull it off. But still, very, very cool. A lot of great performances here. And uh, I, I got to really give, give them kudos. They did a good job. Uh, and very, I should say also one of the key central characters in this thing is Linus Roach, who uh, it's nice to see him putting on his, his normal British accent again uh, as opposed to throwing that American, that hokey American accent on, on Law and & Order. So good job all around, quite a good job. And then uh, along the same veins, we have something that also recently aired, and I think it's going to air, I think it's these last two weekends it aired, uh, as part of Masterpiece Classic, which is Birdsong. This is just straight-up great British wartime melodrama, uh, really great World War I stuff. Just, uh, you know, it, it, they made these movies by the dozen in the, in the 1930s, and uh, seeing it done up just all splashy and Britishy is really pretty great. Um, really recommend this one very, very highly. This is a just good wartime British melodrama and very, very nicely done. Uh, a similar uh, kind of a style is The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This was uh, also part of Masterpiece Classic. And uh, this is a um, this is it kind of an interesting history and pedigree to the source material here because Charles Dickens wrote the novel but never finished it. And so that's this is an attempt to sort of dramatize what would have been uh, perhaps one of Dickens' great works had he actually gone back to it and finished it up. Uh, this is going to be of interest to people because Matthew Reese is in this, similar to uh, what we were saying a second ago uh, about Linus Roach. Matthew Reese, a lot of people might remember from uh, Brothers and Sisters, where he put on an amazing American accent. Nobody ever knew that he was a Welsh actor. But he is a great, great British actor, Welsh actor, and uh, he's tremendous in this. So uh, that one's also quite recommended. And then a little couple of blasts from the past on the British TV end. Uh, the Barbara Taylor Bradford Woman of Substance trilogy. Uh, three whopping miniseries of this goopy, soapy thing. And uh, I was never a big fan, but uh, they, they do kind of have a following in large part because uh, Anthony Hopkins is so kind of... 
youngish, oldish. You know, he's that uh, dashing kind of older gentleman, uh, much younger than he is now. Obviously, good grief! Have you seen the picture of him as Hitchcock? I sent you that picture. That is just ridiculous he lo- looking. He looks like Hitchcock. You know, he, no, he doesn't. Every, every, you know, he looks everyone... like Hitchcock wearing an Anthony Hopkins mask. <laughs> It looks stupid. Well, what did, what did he look like when he played Nixon? He looked like Anthony he, Hopkins. No, he looked like some Nixon. kind of gargoyle. It was it was horrible. He's got to stop it. He's becoming he's becoming the uh, you know the, the the makeup guy, and that's not what he should be. Anyway, Anthony Hopkins uh, is quite good in uh, To Be the Best, which is the final chapter of this, and uh, that's kind of the only thing that really keeps this thing going. Deborah Carr shows up, Liam, young Liam Neeson, James Brolin. Uh, you know, they're they're in the first two, but. Uh, Got to tell you, it's Anthony Hopkins that really kind of makes this thing go. But that's the third miniseries. And then lastly, on Blu-ray, uh, the original Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness playing George Smiley, doing a, a, a really crack job of it. Uh, much better, I think, than uh, than that other guy who recently got an Oscar nomination. What? What's his name? Really? What's that guy's name? Um, Star Wars? Yeah. Gary Oldman? Yeah. Yeah, that old man. That's the guy, that old man. No, I, the funny thing is, if you watch Gary Oldman in the new Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a good movie, I, get, I grant it that. It's just a little bit too much story compressed into two hours and 20 minutes or whatever it is. It's just it's a little too dense for its own good. Um, but he oftentimes sounds like Alec Guinness in that movie, Oldman does. It's weird. It's almost well, like he's it's, channeling him. It's, uh, it's big shoes to fill. It's big shoes to fill. The, the reason that th- this is not as splashy or as stylish, but it's a little bit easier to grasp because it's like six hours long or six and a half hours long. So they really, really go to the, uh, go to the wall with this one. It, uh, it, 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 now, the, the trade-off is that, that sometimes makes it a little tedious, but it's easier to follow. So, and geez, you know, Alec Guinness is great. Now, the Blu-ray transfer shows a lot of flaws in the source material. This was never meant to be seen uh, this close-up. It wasn't that well shot to begin with. But um, if you have to have it, you know, Blu-ray is probably the way to go. You can always dampen the quality. You can always downgrade if you have to. All right, Mark, uh, movies, shall we, uh, we? We talk about movies on this show once in a while, so we should probably uh, get into you, that you whole movie. You mean when we're not talking about uh, kids' DVDs and, uh, and yes. uh, British crap? And British crap, yeah. So you're, you're a big Soderbergh fan. Why don't you, you drool all over that thing? I do love Soderbergh. I really do. I do. I love him. Soderbergh, uh, his last film was Haywire. Now, his, uh, Haywire was supposed to be one of his final films, if not his actual yeah, final film. Yeah, that ain't film, happening. Which, of course, we know is never going to happen, and now he's like, been backtracking on it already. And I went to the premiere for this, actually. It was really fun. It was at the Director's Guild, and it was some party given by, I was there too. Uh, by Playboy. I was there, too. And, uh, it was the, Playboy and Relativity. And Relativity. The food was bad, by the way. I uh, just want to put that out there. Anyway, uh, Soderbergh uh, wrote this film for a woman named uh, Gina Carano, who he saw uh, wrestling beat the, on. Beat the crap out of somebody in a cage fight. In a cage fight, because uh, she's, in, she's in the MMA. And Soderbergh said, I'm going to write a movie around this woman. And the woman said, no, you're not. You're Steven Soderbergh. You've got better things to do. And Soderbergh said, yes, I am. And you know what? He did. He wrote a movie around this woman. Uh, a movie around this woman. And it was written by Lem Dobbs, who was a good writer, who wrote one of Soderbergh's best films, uh, The Limey, he which al- I he love. Al- Lem Dobbs also, he also wrote, wrote Kafka, Kafka, which I love. Which I love, too. You and I are the only ones who love Kafka. And we actually asked Soderbergh, when the hell is that going to come out on Blu-ray or, or even DVD? It's not even out on DVD. No. And and uh, his answer was, uh, yeah, I, I, w- I want to do a commentary for that. And uh, you know, it was sort of humming and hawing and like, yeah, I'll get around to it. But in King of the Hill, too. I know. Damn it. Two of my favorite Soderbergh films. What's up with that? Anyway, this movie, you uh, you really have to sort of 
you really have to take this movie for what it is. It is a you know ninety minute blast of just you know spy stuff punctuated by really kinetic hand to hand combat action. Don't look for a lot of uh, story necessarily. Don't look for a lot of characters. Just look for lean, mean, tight, 90 minutes, done, you're out, you've met this woman, you spent some time with her, it's uh, got a lot of humor in it, it's got a, it, the thing is, Soderbergh is smart, because he knows that he is putting this film in the hands of a woman who's never acted before, uh, he hired a great supporting cast, because you've got to have a strong supporting cast if you're going to center your film around a woman, or even a guy, but let's say a woman in this case, with no acting experience at all. Yep. So... He was smart to get Michael Fassbender, Ewan McGregor, Bill Paxton, Channing Tatum, all very talented actors, Antonio Banderas, Michael Douglas, great supporting cast to support this unknown lead actress. And uh, I liked this film a lot. I thought it was fun. Totally fun. But again, don't take it for anything more than what it's supposed to be, and you'll get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of it. Uh, The uh, picture looks great. Soderbergh, you know, shoots digital now. That's like his thing. And uh, there's a featurette about uh, Gina Carano training to do the film. Uh, I wish there was an um, audio commentary, but there is not. Mm. But it looks great. Liked no. it. Haywire. Check it out. I, I thought it was okay. Uh, it, it, it just felt like a, an exercise to me more than anything else. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's not worth watching. I just say it's, you know, there are better Hong Kong films. You know, there's, an interest, there's a whole interesting backstory, and I won't spend too much time talking about this because it doesn't warrant it, but Madonna's film W.E., that's W period slash E period, uh, as in Wallace and Edward. Uh, this is, this, I think the Weinstein Company acquired this because they thought that they would be able to ride some residual interest in the King's speech because this is sort of the peripheral story. It's the story of how uh, King Edward VIII and uh, the American Wallace Simpson had this romance and you know he abdicated the throne and this, yada, yada, yada. Everybody knows that crazy, crazy story. It actually was nominated for a costume Oscar this last year, believe it or not. So enough people saw it, obviously, in the, uh, that one branch of the Academy. But um, it, it, the story itself is very interesting. The movie, not so much. The casting's not great. Uh, there are some people in the film who try really hard, like Abby Cornish, who, who's tremendous and always is tremendous and uh, I think just gets stuck in so many horrible movies. I feel so badly for her. But Madonna directed this and co-wrote it with uh, on-again, off-again collaborator Alec Kashishian. Um, here's, here's the thing about this movie. When they first started promoting this, I got these press releases, uh, an email from the Weinsteins saying, Madonna's directing debut, Madonna's directing debut. And I emailed them back and I said, seriously, you guys, before you, you embarrass yourselves to just no end, you got to know you're sending these to members of the press. We don't have memories that are that impaired. It was only two years ago that we saw Madonna's directing debut, Filth and Wisdom, and it sucked, and it was horrible. So just by sending out press releases declaring that this is her directing debut, you're not going to make us forget that previous film. People are going to realize that it's a mistake, so stop saying that, or you're, you're going to get called on the carpet, and it's going to be, you're going to have to answer for that. It, and it stopped. Nobody ever emailed me back. Really? No, but the, but the press releases stopped declaring that. So i, I got to believe that it was... They, they had to know that that was not accurate, but I, thought, I think they thought they were going to get away with it for a second. So uh, anyway, you know, Madonna tries really hard. It's completely different from Filth and Wisdom. It just still, she doesn't have a grasp of directing actors, staging scenes, 
pacing a movie. She's not a director. Uh, she gives it a great try and has some very talented supporting people. Uh, you know, the costumes are great. So the cinematography is often very good, but it's so, so incredibly uneven, and it's just really a pity. So um, don't necessarily look to this as the quintessential telling of this tale. Uh, anyway, there's a special one special feature on here, which is the uh, the making of featurette, and uh, it's pretty pandering. Otherwise, uh, it's got a DVD, a Blu-ray, digital copy, the usual deal, the usual drill. Um, let's see what it is. Um, road trip is, uh, I guess this merits some scant mention. Road trip kind of fell in there during that uh, American Pie moment. Uh, this was one of the earlier films that Todd Phillips did before he kind of became much more legit. It's a pretty straight up uh, 80s style teen sex comedy. Not that uh, impressive, to be honest. It uh, just. You know, it's got Sean William Scott in it and Amy Smart uh, taking her top off and Fred Ward shows up. There's a little nod to people from the 80s who'll remember who he is. But otherwise, Todd Phillips has made much better films since and uh, there really isn't much to recommend this. But it's on Blu-ray and this is the uh, this can, includes both the rated and the unrated versions and uh, strictly for fans, I would say. Wade, uh, Mimic has been out on DVD, Blu-ray, oh Laserdisc. A track. Oh my god. Many, many times. Yeah. And uh, now finally we have what I'm hoping is the last word on Mimic. Mimic three film set. Mimic uh, the director's cut, Mimic Two and Mimic Three. Mimic two and three you can forget about. Uh, Mimic one obviously was uh, written by uh, or directed by Guillermo del Toro, so it's quite good. And uh, speaking of Steven Soderbergh, don't forget, uh, people don't know that Soderbergh did a major rewrite on the on the original Mimic script. And so that is why that film is a little, which is a little bit like John Sayles, who used to do a lot of, uh, you know, kind of B-level script work too. Uh, but anyway, so uh, one of the reasons why Mimic is good is because Soderbergh did an uncredited major rewrite on it. The other two pretty uh, uh, disposable. Anyway, uh, none of these films look look all that great on Blu-ray. Uh, you know, Toro, uh, D- Del Toro is a great visual stylist, and not that the film is badly shot; it's very well shot. But you know, it's we're talking like the mid '90s or whatever. When, when, when it was Mimic, like the mid '90s, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so it's before like the full-on, you know, digital revolution, Blu-ray insanity time. Uh, yeah, '97. Anyway, so uh, Mimic, this is all you'd ever want Ugh. for the Mimic fan in your family. Grown. Exactly. Never liked those movies. I needed to die. Uh, the Innkeepers is, uh, boy, I'll tell you, the, I, 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 it's such a double-edged sword, this film. Um, T. West, Ty West, however you pronounce his name, uh, good director. He wrote, directed, and edited this, and I can't really, so you can't really credit anybody else with this thing. It's a great exercise. I just don't know that it's a great movie. Um, basically, here's the deal. There's this uh, New England inn. It's alleged to, be, alleged to have been haunted. you got a couple of goofy kids who are uh, holding down the place on the last night that it's ever going to be open because they're going to shut it down and turn it into condos or some such thing. And um, there are only a few people remaining and a couple of people check in on this last night. Uh, one of whom is, believe it or not, a an incredibly old-looking Kelly McGillis, and it's sort of horrifying because I, when she shows up looking like, you know, like like Cloris Leachman, uh, I thought, oh my gosh, is she going to be in the sequel to Top Gun with Tom Cruise? Because now the age difference is really noticeable, and that would be kind of nasty. You know, but I don't think they're going to do that. Can I say something about Kelly McGillis? Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of uh, Top Gun. 
You know what? Kelly, Kelly McGillis. Never, ugly. never, never did it for no, you. Don't no, don't get. I didn't get it then, and I really don't get it now. <laughs> she has not aged well. Oh no, she's. I mean, look, she's still a very good actress, and she's very good in this. And uh, I think the fact that she's aged. I mean, I hate to say it. I, I really have to apologize to her, but she has not aged well. At least not the way they make her up in this film. Anyway, the idea here is that you know the uh, yeah there's a, the it's it's supposed to be fake and phony that there was this place was ever haunted, but um, as it progresses, you find out, especially when this old guy shows up. Oh my gosh, maybe it really is haunted, and uh, things get really crazy. Um, it's a very threadbare story, but the performances are good, and uh, the commentary with West and um, and the producers. Uh, and some of the other collaborators is really interesting. He also does a commentary with um, uh, the actors, which is, I think, less interesting. But uh, the that one commentary where he's featuring West and the producers is much more interesting. And uh, you learn a lot about you know technique and what they were going for, and you appreciate the film a little bit better. It's uh, it's a decent looking Blu-ray, not a brilliant Blu-ray. A little bit chalky in the blacks. Uh, it's a very dark film. But the suspense stuff in it, when it works, it really works. And some of the humor really works. So it, it, it's, in fits and starts, it's an interesting film. It's just not a, not a brilliant film. It feels more like an exercise. And I'd love to see him do something more conceptual, bigger budget, really kind of uh, give us a, a horror classic. You know, This one is just kind of it's going through the motions in an interesting way. Away in uh, 1973, one of the great cult films of all time, released The Wicker Man. Oh, I love that movie. And uh, from Robert Hardy. And I so and hate the remake. <laughs> the I do. The remake's the best. It's so awful. <laughs> well, uh, recently, uh, Robert Hardy directed not a remake, not a sequel, not a prequel. I guess you can call it like a reimagining of The Wicker Man called The Wicker Tree. And the reason why this doesn't work at all, at least for me, is that uh, somehow the creepiness... Uh, the Wicker Man has been replaced with humor. <laughs> and not that it's a comedy, but it's like it doesn't really have that mm-hmm. uh, creepy dread feeling of horror that made the other one such a legendary, you know, piece of, you know, it really is like a hard touchstone, that film. Mm. As opposed to, of course, the remake with Nicolas Cage, which is uh, even funnier than this film, The Wicker Tree. Anyway, uh, same director, much different result. Uh, it's uh, sort of retells the story with a. Uh, a Texas couple, and they go to they they go to Scotland, and then instead they meet uh, you know, uh, it's basically an allegory on like ugly Americanism, yeah. kind of is what it is. Yeah. But I just I'm not getting that. I, I just feel like it's uh, it's not funny. It's a little bit too light. It's not that it's not scary at all, and it's kind of pointless. Yeah, is the Wicker Tree. All right. Uh, less than pointless is the uh, terrific uh, comedy Clueless. From Amy Heckerling. This came out in 1995. Wade, we now have a Blu-ray of we now have a Blu-ray of Clueless, including some special features. Most of these uh, ported over from the uh, previous iterations of Clueless. Uh, this is good stuff. You know what? Uh, Paul Rudd looks so young in this thing. I know it's amazing. It really is, amazing. and he's not funny in it per se. He's kind of a romantic lead, which is yeah. weird because now. He's that sort of, you know, kind of chunky, silly guy. He's got a whole different persona now. He does. He, they were trying to groom him to be some kind of a, a young stud leading man here. It's weird. Very true. Now, uh, this was Alicia Silverstone's coming out party. She uh, she plays Cher 
who goes to Beverly Hills High School and is like, you know, she's got the cell phone, she's got the Fendi bag, and uh, it was a, this was a fun movie. This yeah. was a fun movie. And uh, Brittany Murphy, the late Brittany Murphy, is also in this. So anyway, this is uh, it's good looking on Blu-ray. It's not a Blu-ray showcase sort of a film, but if you have the original DVD, then you may want to upgrade to the Blu-ray of Clueless, a terrific fun film. Uh, you know, reuniting the Rubens didn't do anything at the box office, and I'm like, I'm kind of sad that it didn't. It's a it's a little bit of a predictable uh, conceit, but it's an enjoyable an enjoyably predictable conceit. Uh, this is one of those classic dysfunctional family movies where all they're really trying to do is just get a whole bunch of quirky people together who don't get along and uh, invent as many eccentric, rambunctious situations as you can and, and hope that people laugh enough that they don't realize how contrived the whole thing is. Uh, but it actually kind of works because they've got some very, very good actors in it. The idea, basically, uh, Timothy Spall, who uh, this generation knows from his performance as Churchill in The King's Speech, Previously, I remember him as being uh, well. You know, he was great in uh, uh, in the um, Star Wars. Yes, exactly. No, he he was great in uh, the friggin Star Wars? the soccer movie that we love so much. Oh, uh, Vi- Victory with Sylvester Sloan and Michael Caine, directed oh, by John Huston. No, gosh, no, Both you know, sides. No, no, no. The 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 one with the 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 the. the oh, come on! I'm not going to bail you out. You know, why am I just totally losing this? The uh, the damn United. Oh, I love that movie. He's great in that. He He's great in The Damned United. Um, but uh, no, he previously was in Ken Russell's Gothic. He played Dr. Uh, Polidori. And was, when he slams his hand, on, he takes the crucifix off the wall and starts impaling his own hand. Uh, self-imposed stigmata. Awful. Terrible. Uh, but, Can, but, cannot abide. But yet, when he does that, you realize you're watching a Ken Russell film. You do indeed. Because he's enjoying it. it. It's a, it's a tip-off. But Timothy Spall here plays a dad who, uh, his mom, played by Honor Blackman, which is so weird. Honor Blackman playing a mom, like an, oh, an aging mom. That tells you, jeez. She wow. was hot. She was. Goldfinger, man. Anyway, she convinces him that he's got to, uh, you know, make amends with his kids. So all of his grown kids, uh, they're all assembled for a vacation, and it just, it's just a nightmare. And that's all this movie's about. It's just uh, let them go crazy. It's a nightmare. But uh, it has its moments. Spall is good. The kids are all good. They're all grown. And uh, it's, it's enjoyable. I'd rent it. I wouldn't buy it. You know, Mark, uh, many years ago, you and I sat down, and we watched a film called The Ape. And we have, uh, we have made fun of James Franco's filmmaking ambitions ever since because it was one of the stupidest films we have ever watched. I agree. Uh, it was uh, really silly. James Franco uh, just waxing so self-indulgent in a low-budget film where he is a writer locked up in a room, haunted by his own imagination, and conjures up an ape, which is basically a guy in an ape suit wearing a Hawaiian shirt who throws feces at him. There it is. It's the stupidest film. It's badly made. It's so, so pretentious. It's just dumb. And uh, then when, of course, uh, his Planet of the Apes movie came out, we, uh, we seemed to be the only people who were aware of that movie. I didn't read a single review that tied that in. On, on, on Amazon? Yeah. Do you realize how many customer re- reviews there are on Amazon for this movie? How many? Five. On Amazon, like, you know, with millions and countless hundreds of millions of people go on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, you would think that just typing in James Franco. Would You're talking be, about the movie that I'm going to talk about. No, The Ape. Oh, The Ape. Okay. On The Ape, there's five uh, well, customer comments. James Franco decided to uh, get back in the director's chair. And uh, it is, uh, it's the other extreme. And by that, I don't mean good. I mean pretentious in an entirely different way. Uh, the film in question is The Broken Tower, based on the true life story of poet Hart Crane. 
I don't. I, I understand. What is he? A Yale man now? James Franco. He's in Yale. Isn't he? Yeah, uh, actually, I think he's on a uh, Cal State Northridge. Princeton, Yale. One of those. He's like Mr. Ivy League, and I've never gotten that out of him, especially when he was hosting the Oscars, like some kind of crazy burnout. Uh, anyway, I'm not that familiar with Hart Crane. Not the least bit interested in Hart Crane. Clearly, Franco is obsessed with him as much as he's obsessed with Tolstoy and all these other writers. And he shot this thing in black and white. It just feels like he's just. Now I'm going to show you that I'm an art director. I I really have it. Uh, once again, he wrote it and he directed it, and I just it no, just don't. I mean, it's better, um, but no, not really, not really. It just still feels pretentious. Uh, Michael Shannon's in it, which kind of pushes it a little bit into more legit territory. Uh, the extras also include. Um, audio commentary with James Franco and uh, producer and cinematographer and um, James Franco interviews Hart Crane scholars which is not interesting in the least but anyway this is part of the Focus World line which is a, a kind of a subline from Focus Features and uh, considering that Focus is, has been on the chopping block for what a year and a half now Universal can't offload that thing it, it, there just seems to be no enthusiasm for any of their titles, whether straight to DVD or theatrical or anything. Well, is the, is but does that sell? It must include the library. No one's going to buy Focus without their library. No, but like nobody seems to want it. It's a weird thing. Are they charging too much? I no, mean, what I'm I saying is that does, is. is that does yeah. does the price oh, yeah. include the library? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you betcha. Mean, you mean if, if 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 we bought Focus features right now, and, and I I've, I've got seven bucks in my wallet. We could actually have the rights to uh, 127 Hours. Yes, we could. And lots of other great films. Sure, we could. By the way, speaking of great films, yeah. you know what's coming out on June 19th? What's coming out on June 19th? On Blu-ray? What's coming out? Now, we talked about Christian Bale last yes. week and the, the book, mm-hmm. but on June 19th, Empire of the Sun. I know, right? I'm excited. I know, right? Fuh. I, cha. Blah. Cha. <laughs> cha. Totally. Good times. Good times. Universal's, uh, they're really uh, doing well. Yeah. The Sting, uh, Jaws, Empire of the Sun, all coming out on big Blu-rays. You getcha. You betcha. Uh, you know, we got some foreign films I'm going to uh, roll through relatively expeditiously because we still have some, uh, some a whole bunch of titles that we haven't been able to get to. Um, we got a criterion here that I find to be wonderful and totally peculiar at the same time. This is a Mario Monicelli film starring Marcello Mastroianni. You bet. That's right. It's an Italian movie. Uh, this is a 1963 film called The Organizer, and it takes place uh, around the turn of the century, and uh, it's basically one of those union films. Uh, it kind of goes along with Strike and uh, um, uh, what's the one with the, the she, you, you Like Me, You Really Like Me, No, um, The Flying Norma Nun, what would, Norma, Norma Ray, thank you, Norma Ray. See, I start with The Flying Nun, we work our way to Norma Ray. Mm-hmm. That's the way this referential game works. And Mate One, of course. You know, these are all labor union movement uh, uh, movies. And we could even put, uh, you know, uh, On the Waterfront in there, couldn't we? Yes, we could. Yes, we could. We sure could. Uh, Anyway, uh, not one of the great Italian films of all time, but certainly a nice discovery that I had never seen before. I thought they did a great, great job transferring it. Uh, This is a fabulous Blu-ray, beautifully, beautifully shot. And uh, it's got an introduction from the director that he did in 2006, as well as uh, a trailer and an essay by Jay Hoberman, who is just a lovely, lovely writer. And then we also have from uh, Criterion's Eclipse line, Pearls of the Czech New Wave. 
This is really important. This includes, uh, if you don't know the Czech New Wave, you're missing out. A lot of great films here. The movies here included are Pearls of the Deep, Daisies, A Report on the Party, and Guests, Return of the Prodigal Son, Capricious Summer, and The Joke. Now, some of these have been at, were released previously through Facets, but in really kind of spotty transfers. And they have cleaned them up. If you still have, say, Daisies and The Joke in your Facets releases, chuck them. Sell them. Use them for coasters, whatever. So much better here. I don't even know where to begin. I, it's like dazzling how they've improved on those, on those transfers. And uh, Robert M. Young, a director who seems to have kind of vanished. What, how old is he now, Mark? How, how old would you say Robert M. Young is? He ain't young, I'll tell you that Thank much. Thank you. Ba-bam. Thanks. Ba-bam. I mean, what was the last thing he did? Uh, he's like, Robert he's, M. Young? He's evaporated, hasn't he? He what has he done? He uh, the last film he directed was an, oh wait he directed a couple episodes of Battlestar Galactica the new uh, that's one that's great <laughs> yeah. it's pretty wow. bizarre yeah that is a bizarre thing for him to direct he what, was born what? in 1924 okay so he's he's pushing it now he's almost he's like 90 he's, yeah wow he's getting up to be 90 wow and he directed some episodes of Battlestar Galactica yeah well. That's anyway, Robert Robert M. Young has always been a real maverick, and uh, this is a film of his that I had never seen. Uh, it's much more timely now than it was when it was made in 1977, that year of Star Wars once again. Uh, 1977, he made a film called Alambrista, with the uh, you know the little uh, exclamation points at the beginning and the end as they as they do in Spanish. You know the upside down and the right side up because they do that with question marks and uh, exclamation points in Spanish. You know that, right? Why do they have to have them twice? I don't know. One is fine. I don't I know. I see it. I get it. I know what it means. I don't need it twice. Yeah, but anyway, uh, this is about a migrant worker who uh, comes across the border illicitly and uh, to do that thing that migrant workers do, which is send money back home. And uh, in 1977, it was happening, but it wasn't, you know, top news story. It wasn't part of the presidential election as it is today. This is now, you know, uh, comprehensive immigration reform is the buzzword of the day. And a film like this is really, really interesting because you realize things ain't changed. And uh, this won the camera door in 1978, um, and deservedly so. It really is a, is quite a great work of kind of poetic realism and a great commentary from Robert M. Young, along with his producer, and a new interview with J- Edward James Olmos. Bravo, Edward James Olmos. Because, you know, he's, he's kind of like the, the godfather of all things Latino these days. I think that in like 20 years, Edward James Olmos will be Danny Trejo. He <laughs> Let's hope not. Uh, And then our last Criterion title of the day is Late Spring, an Ozu film that is pretty much the quintessential Ozu film. This is from 1949. And just on the the, uh, eve of the Japanese New Wave, one of the kind of the early films from that uh, great movement. And uh, it's... You know what? It it really is just the the same thing that you get in a lot of his other films, but it's beautiful and it's poetic and it's poignant and it's a lovely portrait of a of a Japanese family in uh, in post war Japan. Uh, this also includes a an audio commentary from the uh, film scholar Richard Pena, who's program director of the uh, New York Film Society of Lincoln Center. Isn't that where Scott Foundas went to work? Scott Foundas is over there now, isn't he? With the uh, yeah, Film Scott Society of Lincoln, like, he's all cleaned up, wearing suits, and slicked his hair back, and is trying to like you know but, be look like a handsome young gent. <laughs> but that's where he's working right now, isn't it? The Film yes, Society it of Lincoln Center. Yeah, so he's working with Richard Pena. And then you also get Tokyo Ga, a 1985 uh, documentary that Vim Vendors made about Ozu, which is actually quite hilarious. 
and then a lot of essays and the usual other fun things. So it's uh, that's a that's a, a great batch of movies there. I gotta say, great batch of movies. Uh, Mark, we can go on to. Uh, do we want to talk about some documentaries? Wrap the show out. We got about we got about eight seven or eight minutes left. Seven or eight minutes left. Hmm. Let's see. Do we want to talk about Killer Nun? <laughs> do you want you want to do the exploitation stuff? You love the exploitation. I, stuff. I do love I the exploitation. I don't see very many interesting. Uh, I think we can save those documentaries. Save those. Yeah. Save them for another time. I think well, you know, the you exploitation know. stuff is more fun, though. No? It is, but there are actually a couple of docs that I should talk. You know, here. Uh, actually, you know what? See, uh, see the one. Uh, there's a couple of. Uh, yeah, there, there are some good docs in there, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you just. I'm, I'm gonna let you go crazy on a couple of these disgusting things, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prep a couple of docs because some of these docs are important to talk about. Well, wait. Here's the thing. When I think of nuns, I, I don't, I don't think of uh, the kindly young ladies who have. Devoted themselves to a life of celibacy and religious thought and reflection. I think of Killer Nun from the Secret Files of the Vatican, starring Nita Ekberg. Nita Ekberg, back in the day, was hot and delicious. She was a uh, Swedish uh, sex chef, bomb. Chef. She was a chef. Yeah, she was. Mm, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> she was. She, look, Nita Ekberg went from La Dolce Vita to. Killer nun. Unbelievable. Anyway, so uh, she plays a, a nun who, uh, you know, becomes like a drug addict and is into sexual degradation and murder and all that sort of stuff. So it's um, obviously it's played for ridiculousness. And uh, it was actually even banned in Britain. So is it good? Not really. But it's definitely unique. So I would, uh, if, you've, if you've given up, uh, trying to find new, interesting, funky, weird, culty films to uh, check out and watch, then the folks at Blue Underground have done you a favor by releasing on Blu-ray Killer Nun, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, Killer Nun. Now, if that wasn't enough, we have something even more strange, something called Planet of the Vampire Women. Now, I wouldn't want to live on a planet with vampire women because they would bite me and then I would be dead. But they're fun. It's fun while it lasts, man. <laughs> The thing is, this is from 2011. This is very, very, very low budget, and you know, it, it's almost like if it's can't, it's almost like it's campy mm-hmm. because it's, it's it's look. If you're that low budget, yeah, you might as well be campy because campy suggests low budget. Totally. Where if you try to be actually good and try to be actually serious and try to be actually scary, the low budget will undercut all those efforts. True. So if you're really, really low budget. Just say, we suck because we're a cult film and we're low budget, and so we're just going to embrace that. So that's what they tried to do with uh, Planet of the Vampire Women. I, frankly, I think this thing is just ridiculous. Um, you know, it's, it's got vampires and space pirates and <laughs> bad acting and bad makeup and badly lit and badly shot. But, you know, again, it's trying to sort of uh, embrace that and, and almost use it as a... As a as, as like a conscious decision, so anyway, I would pass on Planet of the Vampire Women. Not into it. Uh, you know what I'm into, Mark? I, I think this is an absolutely. This film is a riot. It's a it's a hoot and it's hysterical and it's a lot of fun. Uh, this is from Synapse and uh, it's a Blu-ray DVD combo. You got to get it. You just got to get it, especially in Blu-ray because all the grain and it just looks cheesier and it just feels the low budgetness of it is just even better. This was made in 1985. And uh, Brian Schultz 
plays this. This is this is called "Thou Shalt Not Kill." Dot dot dot. Except. Thou shalt not kill. Except. Does that even make sense? No, not at all. Grammatically correct. It's not even closely. Uh, This is hysterical. The um, this is about a uh, Marine sergeant named Jack Stryker, played by Brian Schultz, who comes back from Vietnam. And he's been really, you know, a bit, bit traumatized in Vietnam. And he comes back and he finds out that his ex-girlfriend is now part of some crazy, like, uh, like, like Looney Manson-type cult. The cult leader is played by Sam Raimi. Yeah, come on. That's good times. <laughs> uh, you can't help but just laugh. Now, Sam Raimi, if you've never seen him act, he's a really good actor. Um, in the movie Indian Summer... He's one of the best things about it. He really is. He plays the you know one of the camp workers, and he's just he has moments of physical comedy that are priceless. I mean, priceless. So uh, Sam Raimi is, and his brother, you know, was briefly on uh, Sequest uh, DSV or B- BFD or whatever. Um, anyway, but uh, no, this is terrific. And there's also uh, Strikers War on this, which stars Bruce Campbell. That's on here as well. Um, Audio commentaries from everybody, including uh, director Josh Becker and and Bruce Campbell, who co-wrote the thing. By the way, that's what's important to note. Bruce Campbell was a co-writer on this, and uh, and the and the producers. This, these are the same guys that produced uh, uh, the Evil Dead films for uh, for Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. So I mean, it's their whole little it's their little clique, and uh, it comes right from that moment, that uh, Evil Dead moment, and it it's a it's a lost classic. I think it's a lost camp classic. You got to check it out. Uh, a lot of great stuff on here. It's just a fun, silly, psychotic, uh, twisted exploitation film from the mid-'80s. Uh, thou shalt not kill, except... Dun-dun-dun. Uh, you know, quick mention of two of these documentaries that uh, we were talking about earlier. One is The Man Nobody Knew, In Search of My Father, CIA spymaster William Colby. Uh, Colby's son, Carl Colby, made this documentary. Carl Colby is not a documentarian, and the film suffers only in that respect. That, uh, that Carl Colby is, is really telling kind of a personal memoir and uh, learning the filmmaking process along the way. But the story of William Colby is just a, it's a crushing story. Colby was a, uh, basically he was the J. Edgar Hoover of the CIA, and uh, he lasted through a number of uh, presidential administrations, Republican and Democrat, Vietnam War, Cold War, um, uh, Nixon, uh, you know, Truman, on and on and on and on, from the end of World War II. This is the story of, of how he basically was as both a father and a spymaster, and he was not a great dad. And, you know, Colby's demise is another interesting story as well. So this is a, a very interesting film, a, a heartbreaking film, a difficult film. Uh, not a perfect film, but the story makes up for it. And then lastly uh, is Garbo the Spy. These are both, both of these films are from first-run features. Uh, Garbo the Spy is, uh, is about this uh, fascinating uh, double agent. And... Um, you know the entire World War II adventure that surrounds this fascinating figure and uh, what he did, both you know, for both sides and on both sides, and the role that he played in basically bringing the war to an end. It's an it's an incredible story. It's an epic story that I, it's an amazing. This thing has never been really presented in its full uh, in its fullness before. So you're, you got to think that this is going to be turned into some kind of a big, giant Hollywood epic at some point. But before they ruin it in that way, you should definitely check out Garbo the Spy. All right, Mark, quick predictions. Uh, Avengers, opening weekend gross. What do you say? Uh, $6 million. 
Can you imagine if the Avengers made like six million dollars? That would be that hysterical. Would, I would honestly, I would literally, I would probably, I, 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 I don't know what I would do with myself. It'd be hilarious. I, I say it's going to do uh, about one seventy. No, no way. What do you think? What do I think? I'll say, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to say ninety. Ninety. Oh yes, I'm going there. Okay, you do that. Yeah.